Hey, everyone. In our last episode, I ended the show with an invitation for you to call us and share your theories, opinions, or thoughts about Richard Adderson's homicide, the investigation, or just the Slim Turkey show in general. Now, we'll still keep that number up at 917-410-5528. But until we get more of your calls, we're going to hold off on that episode. And remember, you can always email us anytime too. Send your messages to clues at slimturkey.com. Now, coincidentally, I had the pleasure of speaking with the hosts of Missing Maura Murray, Tim and Lance, last week, and it gave me the opportunity to speak to the two guys who inspired me to create Slim Turkey. I was introduced to Missing Maura Murray back in February of 2018 and began listening to true crime podcasts ever since. If you've never heard the show, I highly recommend it. And if you have, you know the story. At the time of her disappearance, Maura Murray was a 21-year-old college junior at the University of Massachusetts. On Monday, February 9, 2004, Maura drove three hours from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts, to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and then inexplicably disappeared. She had been involved in a single vehicle traffic accident on the dark and desolate Route 112. There was at least one witness who had spoken with Mora and offered her assistance, but she refused any help, claiming to have already called roadside assistance. When police responded to the scene approximately 10 minutes later, Mora was no longer in her car, and she has never been seen or heard from since. Tim and Lance set out to find more about the mystery by diving into Mora's life, the surrounding area in which she went missing, and the online world of armchair detectives. It is a great series, and it's especially significant for the Slim Turkey podcast. Tim and Lance are now in their fourth year of the show, and they continue to keep Maura Murray's case relevant. That's really what motivated Mr. Slim Turkey and me to start our own show. We wanted to reinvigorate the investigation into Richard Adderson's homicide and to keep his story alive. And then you have the fact that Maura disappeared from Haverhill, New Hampshire, and Richard's killer is more than likely from New Hampshire as well. I'm hoping that connection alone will prompt a greater interest in the Richard Adderson case, especially in the Granite State. But enough of the fanfare. Here's my conversation with Tim and Lance, and I apologize for the echo in my voice. I'm still learning this podcasting thing on the fly. At approximately 7.37 p.m. on February 9, 2004, when an officer from the Haverhill, New Hampshire Police Department was dispatched to the scene of that car accident, that was where the mystery began. You end your introduction. The driver was later identified as Maura Murray, 21-year-old college student from Massachusetts. There have been no credible sightings of her since. How did you guys first hear about Maura's disappearance? Uh, well, Maura's disappearance is something that now comes up on a Google search all the time when you type in New Hampshire cold case or New Hampshire unsolved 
you'll see Mora's name. But that wasn't always the case. There, there um, was a time when her name wasn't so big in the uh, true crime community. But you could find it. Uh, we first discovered it when I was looking into another unsolved murder that happened in the town right next to the town that I grew up in, New Hampshire. And I was doing some video editing and I was just like in the middle of waiting for something to render. So I started looking up this other case. And the more I was looking up that case, uh, the more um, information about Mora came up and James Renner's blog came up. And that's the introduction to Mora Murray was uh, looking for information on another unsolved murder. Well, I shouldn't say another unsolved murder, looking for information on another cold case and finding more. And then I introduced it to Tim, and here we are. Oh, that's awesome. So you started your podcast in 2015, right? That's right, July of 2015. We had started a documentary in December of 2013, and we were we kind of had some footage, but weren't really sure where to go with it. And it was Lance's idea to do a podcast on the case. And I was like, no way we could do a a podcast on one case and you know maybe you get five episodes out of that and then serial happened and it was like okay maybe we should just do it and see what happens and at the very least it'll further the documentary and let us finish that and uh it took on a life of its own pretty quickly after we launched it that's incredible so you were referring to the the cold case in the town next to moore's disappearance had you ever considered any other cases covering, you know, other aside from those two? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, just a quick correction. It was a cold case that was in the town next to where I grew up in New Hampshire. So I grew up in southern New Hampshire and it was a yeah. And I think originally I was thinking about doing a some sort of documentary about that particular one. But the more I looked into Morris case, the more it just seemed like what was really fascinating about her case was how much information was being distributed online and you could get the sense, this buzz of energy that was developing in the community surrounding her case and the people that were involved with that community just seemed so fascinating to Tim and I, which is why we sort of shifted gears and went to the Winter Morris case for that documentary concept. Oh, wow. Can you tell me what your early motivations were in terms of where you saw the podcast going and how that has either changed or morphed into something else as you guys have, you know, to me, you, I consider you guys pioneers and have taken this case four years now. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I would say that it's shifted direction several times over the course of its three and a half year run. Um, we initially just wanted to put out the information as we knew, uh, like uh, that were facts. And then it inevitably became us just kind of, I don't know, speculating or theorizing on things and then reading comments and kind of just talking about a lot of the local rumors, sort of doing like a sports talk radio version of the Maura Murray case with people just giving opinions, kind of having debates and not terribly long after we started, we heard from the production company, Texas Crew Productions, and there was a chance to do a television show investigation on it. And so that is one other shift that we 
uh, made because it was it, it, we were trying to keep the awareness going and kind of just keep the show going long enough for this TV show to happen and it will bring a much bigger audience to the entire case. And really, we thought that the show could possibly solve the case. Um, that hasn't happened at this point, but I will say we are not talking about the same things that we were talking about back in those early episodes anymore. In fact, we don't even really address it as a possibility that Mora ran away or that Mora committed suicide anymore because after all the information that's been new and out there in the last three and a half years and things that we've learned, it just doesn't seem possible anymore that those two outcomes, uh, you know, befell Mora. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. And now we, we kind of feel like we sort of, uh, in a sense, kind of lead the community. And, um, you know, a lot of people from the community, a lot of people, as you said, in New Hampshire do listen. So we do feel like we can have a positive impact on a community of people who follow this case. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy when we first started. It was just to put the information out there. And then that turned into, oh, wow, we're getting in touch with people who have written about the case or people who know about the case or people who are on the search parties, uh, people who have investigated it. And then this company comes along and they're like, we have a big budget that could, you know, what they could do with a budget that we didn't have uh, to actually put the case in front of a, a national eye, a world eye, really. Yeah. Um, so we we went through that, and then and then we started getting information about actual leads and working with law enforcement because of the TV show. Yeah, I I would never say that we're like pioneers or that we ever intended to to do this and have it be solved. It was just sort of the we let the we let the the narrative take us. Yeah, that's amazing. This is just piece of advice that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for. Other than what the media laid out, when you originally were looking into the Maura Murray disappearance, where did you turn for more information about the details of her disappearance? Uh, early articles, bloggers, dispatch records, police records that were available, obviously redacted commenters online, people who knew the family, people who knew witnesses, witnesses. We suddenly got a connection with uh, Helena Murray, Helena Dwyer Murray, who was the spokesperson and the record keeper for the family. And she provided us with a lot of contact information and a lot of insight based on all of the documents and, and records that she had been categorizing and storing for years. So she was a huge help before she passed away. Oh, wow. What police department ultimately has the jurisdiction of the case? The New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit is really running the show now. And I think a lot of those uh, details, they, they speak with the attorney general, um, or I should say senior assistant attorney general, Jeff Strelzen. So I think Strelzin probably heads the operation in a sense and uh, the cold case unit. And uh, there's a few officers in particular that uh, work on this case probably more than others. So the Haverhill Police Department, it originally was their case, right? Yeah, that's right. 
Um, and it kind of quickly became a state police case. And actually, that that road, right, right where she went missing, is kind of a state road, right? Okay, right on the, uh, the be- lake. Yeah, well, it's on a, it's right alongside of uh, the Wild Amanusik River, but it's also part of the Kangamangas Highway. And parts of the Kang, one big part of the Kangamangas Highway is uh, a state-run uh, conservatory highway, uh, like a wildlife. Um, Highway. I'm, preservation. I'm, preservation. That's the word I, and, I'm blanking on. And but. the Haverhill office is only like four guys or four officers. So, uh, yeah, they weren't really equipped to handle uh, an investigation of this scope or even really a search of the scope that they needed. And then that's not me insulting them. That's four guys saying, what you know, what are they going to do? They have to do their their other duties too. Uh, so I think it quickly got turned over to Fish and Game for the searches and the state police for the investigation. Okay. And a follow-up to that is what resistance, and I'm I'm talking about from day one before you had made your contacts, what resistance did you meet with in dealing with the new, the new Hampshire State Police when trying to get information about the case? Well, um... It's hard to say. Okay, okay. Um, we had an interview with Assistant Attorney, Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzin, and perhaps a member of the Cold Case Unit, scheduled uh, for I think it was March of 2016, and we they actually canceled. We were supposed to go to Concord and record video and everything, and they actually canceled us the night before, uh, which was very disappointing. And, you know, led, led to uh, some frustrations online and everything. And But then they, they ended up answering the questions that we had prepared anyway, just in writing, uh, in an email. And I really just think they probably didn't know us from anything. I mean, we, we didn't have a history or, you know, a true crime background. We're filmmakers, you know. And I just think that they're very careful with especially going on video, but audio too, because they can be edited in ways that, uh, you know, they like, they have to trust us to just do an interview because you could splice together an answer from a different question and really make them look bad. Whereas a controlled environment of you, you give us the questions and we'll give you the written answers. They have total control over that. They did apologize when they were when they had to cancel, but it seemed like uh, they didn't know who we were beforehand. And then they said, "Oh, we have that meeting with those people tomorrow." And then they did a quick search on us, and they said, "Oh, we can't do that. They, they <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter like how many people they talk to on a podcast. They're gonna we don't know how this is gonna go down." So yeah. they did say, "Why don't you send us the questions and we'll answer what we can?" And then we ended up reading those answers on on the air, which they were fine with. And uh, it was, some of it was telling. A lot of the questions that they didn't answer was sort of more telling than the questions they did answer. Because some of them they just left blank and some of them said that they couldn't comment on it. So I don't, it, was, it was tough to kind of read into the difference between the two. And they ended up doing on-camera interviews for Oxygen's The Disappearance of Maura Murray. But uh, whoever wasn't being interviewed at the time. Jeffrey Strelzin was always kind of sitting in the room as well as one of the other cold case detectives, I think. And I think it's for the exact reason we're talking about here so that they know if there was some kind of shenanigan 
done by Oxygen's editing team or the production company, you know, because I think they trusted those entities a lot more than they trusted us, two independent guys without a background in investigation. Um, but they still needed to cover their asses in some sense. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's people make a big deal about Strelzen's appearance in the room in the TV show and they try to make it out as if he's watching over them with an iron fist and they're doing like they're doing his bidding and saying what he wants them to say. But it, it would have been more strange to me if he wasn't in the room as the senior assistant DA. Yeah, it just feels like that's that is what he's overseeing and he's he must oversee it. Yeah, he's he's not sitting there because Cecil Smith, the first responding officer, is about to crack and say, we, we did it, we did it. And then and then Strelzen's going to interrupt and be like, shut these cameras down. Yeah, shut it down. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like we know that that's not the scenario, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I think, I think we kind of, we kind of uh, thought it out ourselves. And I think that that seems to be the most likely scenario. Uh, what we just described. Currently, we do have a very nice relationship with the cold case unit. The head of the cold case unit has talked to us and said that they adapt to the times and they have people listening to the podcast. And we had some live shows where we had uh, Art Roderick and Maggie on these live shows at a theater in Somerville. And they, they reached out to us and said, hey, can you forward us the list of people that are going to the live show so that they can look at it? So we do have a, a really good relationship with the cold case unit now. And I think it's because we never really pushed the envelope in the past. We never said... This is a conspiracy. They're hiding information. We we're always pretty fair about why information wasn't out there, but we were, you know, equally critical of of a bad start to the to the investigation way back in the day. But they get that, you know, they that that's something that they acknowledge as well. But right now, we have a really great relationship with the cold case unit. Oh, that's great. You would think, and and I can say this from experience. Sometimes police departments would have a little thicker skin, especially with all the shit that they have to deal with. And it's always surprising to me when, you know, a police department can really take offense to something that you might say in terms of their investigation, where they should just let it roll off of them and say, you know, this is uh, this is not really a big deal. You have such limited information in terms of this case, that's not going to bother you. And and the only reason that I'm bringing that up is because unlike yourselves, I have been quite harsh on the New York State and New Hampshire State Police for not releasing as much information as I want, especially the New Hampshire State Police, because it's not their investigation. And at what point do you say, all right, this is really a cold case? They... And I know that no police department will ever say it's a closed case. They're all open. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that some cold cases that have had no leads in years are are dead, you know? Yep, absolutely. And And we've heard from them saying that there is some, you know, definitely some benefit to getting the crowd worked up in a sense, you know, getting people talking about it. That is how information jogs loose. So, uh, and even, and, and, you know, we've heard that even like they, they don't mind like, uh, like 
bickering, in infighting, things like that. Like that, that's all kind of a benefit to them. And uh, as long as people are talking about the case, you know, it keeps it keeps it from going ice cold. Yeah, you guys have been talking about this case for coming up on four years right now, and that that can only benefit the case, and that can only lead to to good things to come. Um, the last question I want to ask you guys. I host the show with my good friend who we call Mr. Slim Turkey, or he likes to refer to himself as the Yonkers Love Chicken. And we often ramble about whatever topic we're focusing on in that episode. And we occasionally do use foul language. Again, this is a completely off-topic question. Do you guys have a favorite obscenity? Hmm. Yeah, this is a good question. Wow. Favorite, a favorite cuss word. Favorite cuss there, word. There's some favorites around the office. Yeah, there's some favorites around here. Um, I mean, the, the like, I personally love the versatility in fuck. Yeah. I think you can get a verb, a noun, a pronoun. Like, you can really cover the gamut with the word fuck. Yeah, and it can be used for inflection, for... You know, it, it can add passion to a uh, to a sentence. You can put that in front of any other word and it becomes a completely different thing. Yeah, we were actually just talking in the office before the interview. Uh, like, what does go fuck yourself mean to you? This was an actual conversation. And we're not kidding. <laughs> this was an actual conversation. Yeah. Like, what do you mean when you say that to someone? And how does that differ from fuck off? Yeah, do you, is that like a literal thing? Are you actually giving someone direction? Or are you just saying, get the, get the fuck out of my face? Well, my, um, mine is a derivative of fuck. It's fucker. Did you guys see Snatch? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's this one scene where Brad Pitt's character, Mickey, is talking to the two con men, Turkish and Tommy, and this dog jumps up and bites Brad Pitt on the elbow. And at that point, <laughs> he gets almost in this fighting stance and fucker. And ever since I heard him use that word fucker, <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I have some other words that I would love to use on the show, but my, uh, my mom listens to my show so fair enough you know <laughs> yeah there there are certain british words that we'd like to bring back that we toss around and we'd like to uh you know they're commonly used in the uk and it's they have a completely different meaning so maybe we'll make a solid push for that once uh once we don't give a fuck what people think about us <laughs> <laughs> i like it i'll be there to cheer you on <laughs> thanks thank you <laughs> Again, I, I, I know I said this, but I just really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Missing Maura Murray was the first podcast that I had ever listened to. My friends Kelly and Seth introduced me to podcasts and they told me about your, your show. And you guys have inspired me, not only devouring podcasts, but to to make my own So. And then when you guys agreed to speaking with me, it was just, it was great. And I, I thank you for speaking with me. It really means a lot to me. 
Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Lee Purchase. We really appreciate what you do. And again, um, it, it means a lot to us, uh, your words. And it also, you probably you don't even realize that it kind of validates what we do uh, because you're a, an actual police officer doing this outside your jurisdiction. And that to us uh, says that we are doing the right thing. Absolutely. And, and pl please send our regards to... Mr. Slim Turkey. The Yonkers love chicken himself. The, the Yonkers love chicken. You two are a, uh, <laughs> you two are a great team. As thankful as I am to have had the opportunity to speak with those guys, I miss my buddy Mr. Slim Turkey and our conversations about Richard's case. But I assure you, he is definitely back in rare form for our next episode, which is a follow-up to the Sissy Taylor episode. We'll look at another union leader crime reporter, Mr. Derek Rose. Derek wrote one article about the Adderson case in November 1998, a little over a year and a half after Richard's homicide. In his piece, he reported the police had cleared the mysterious client of the McLean Middleton law firm. Yet, you have to make some major assumptions if you're to believe everything Derek wrote in that article. The turkey and I dig into that debate in the next episode. Here's a peek. You're going to Aspen tomorrow. Yeah. You're going skiing? Gonna attempt to. That's the haven't been uh, on the mountain in a couple of years, so let's just see how this goes. I'm and excited though. When was the last time you were skiing? Uh not to give it away, but a couple of years ago, so. And Something bad happened, and but whatever. Well, I broke my coccyx snowboarding two years ago. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, that's the bone butt. That is the... <laughs> I mean, uh, that's the butt bone. <laughs> the bone that butt. is my... <laughs> that's my tailbone. I, it's uh, very, it, it, it is very hard, I think, medically to break your coccyx, right? Because you have to yes. land in a specific spot. <laughs> So what is the recovery for uh, nothing? <laughs> rest. And they said, if you actually feel sore when sitting, sit on a pillow. A donut. Yeah. Yeah. The donut, actually. <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, Forrest Gump uh, injury. You have to sit on a donut to go to the bathroom. That, that Because you got injury. shot in the buttocks. Well, that is not the clip that I was looking for. But we will focus on Derek's article in the next episode, Rose's Thorny Reporting. So we'll see you all back here in two weeks. I wanna thank you for listening to the show and joining me on this case. And if you like the show, fatten up the turkey with some positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. And find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, to call us with your comments, questions, theories, and hopefully some tips about this case at 917-410-5528 or email us anytime at clues at slimturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. Ah!
I got the hotter flavor for the underground appetite. Hover around the mic in an orbit like a satellite. Sat to write rhymes a little better than you slacker types. Habitat back up on the beat with a banner bite. You're playing catch up, heavy links got your lap. Look back to the matter as we crash through your MacBook. Sat shook, blame tap for your bad luck. Look up in the mirror, see it's cracked. You're a lame duck. Saying nothing new, we come rough with enough tunes. I'll be dusting off the breaks we made years ago soon, and they're better than your best track. I represent a setback. Get back to the lab and try again. That's your best bet. Taking you under, and you're blatantly wondering how you're gonna cope with this lyrical thundering. It's unrelenting when we come with the Don rhymes. Something about the way he drops the raps in the bomb side. Brushes and two brighters, you make me too bright. 